let's open with a word of prayer. And before you do that, maybe get your Bibles out, turn to Luke chapter 9. In Luke chapter 9, we are going to move on into another familiar narrative, and that's the feeding of the 5,000. And uh, so whenever you preach uh, very familiar, popular narratives, it's always, it's always interesting to see, say, okay, Lord, uh, how can I teach this, and, and what really does your word say, and, and certainly don't want to add or subtract to it. And so tonight I hope that we'll see a perspective from Luke that was really eye-opening for me as we dive into the feeding of the 5,000. But first, let's open with a word of prayer. Our Father, this evening we, are, we remain thankful for who you are, for all that you've done, that you are the God of hosts, the hosts of heaven and of earth, that you have created uh, through your Son, and uh, we are so thankful that we are counted among your children tonight, that we have the comfort that you can comfort us, the comfort that you use through comforting others that have gone before us in a like manner and suffering. And it is indeed the glory of the church that we suffer together, that we comfort one another together, and that we have all things in common through Jesus Christ. And so uh, we especially think of uh, Mrs. Green tonight. We pray that you continue to Encourage her in the Lord and all that she has through uh, the inheritance provided in him. And Lord, we pray for the uh, Poe family. Lord, we long to see uh, fruit that will remain uh, family members that are encouraged in the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends that know George's life, know that she uh, didn't claim, like any of us, to be a perfect individual or to have it all together, or to never even fear in the midst of some of the most trying words any American can hear, and that is you have cancer. Uh, but Father, I pray that you would, uh, you would use George's testimony even still to uh, shower the Lord Jesus Christ with the glories that he deserves, and that that would cause people to come to him through faith. I pray, too, that as you uh, sit through your spirit, give us a help, enlightenment, uh, uh, illumination tonight as we read through this uh, short narrative, but this powerful narrative, that you'd help us to put it in perspective in our own lives today, and that we would go away encouraged, knowing that you are the God of the impossible, and that you delight, you delight to provide for your children. We're so thankful. We ask that you would bless us now in your uh, name, we pray. Amen. So Luke chapter 9, verses 10 through 18 is what we'll read today. We're going to go back a little bit into our, our narrative from last week. Um, really here in, in verse 10 and 11, it's really a transition uh, between the first nine verses and that ministry transition that we saw last week with the apostles to now the feeding of the 5,000 narrative, and starting in verse 12. So let's look at chapter 9, verse 10. When the apostles returned, that's returning from that ministry mission that Jesus gave them to, 
or gave to them, they gave an account to him of all that they had done, taking them with him. He withdrew by himself to a city called Bethsaida. But the crowds were aware of this and followed him, and welcoming them, he began speaking to them about the kingdom of God and curing those who had need of healing. Now the day was ending, so this seems to be the same day, and the twelve came and said to him, that's to Jesus, send the crowd away that we may go into the surrounding villages and countryside and find lodging and get something to eat, for here we are in a desolate place. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. <laughs> and they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, and it wasn't even theirs. We know the accountant John tells us it was the little boys that was among the crowd. And they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless perhaps we go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men, and he said to his disciples, Have them sit down to eat in groups of about 50 each. They did so, and had them all sit down. Then he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed them and broke them, and kept giving them to the disciples to set before the people. And they all ate and were satisfied, and the broken pieces which they had left over were picked up, twelve baskets full. And it happened that while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he questioned them, saying, Who do the people say that I am? And so, here we have quite an interesting narrative. In fact, it is the most public demonstration of Jesus' miraculous power recorded for us. Have you ever heard the phrase, seeing is believing? Of course you have. We've either said it ourselves or we've heard it said to us. And certainly it is a very human thing for us to operate life that way. In fact, God never really intended for us to, to have to only operate by what we don't see in terms of faith. He, he intended for us to operate by what we do see. He walked with Adam and Eve in the garden in the cool of the, in the, cool of the day. What an incredible thought to see God, to hear his voice, and to fellowship with him in such an intimate way. It is hard to describe stuff that you can't see to others, particularly five-year-olds named Stella in my house. And so the other day we were uh, doing something that uh, probably uh, my generation will laugh at me for, but... Uh, we have a garden, and why I have a garden on that plot of ground and not a hot tub is something I always wonder, especially when I'm plant, uh, pulling weeds. Um, and maybe that better sensibility will get the, get the better of me eventually. But we have a garden, and, and one thing uh, that we uh, like to do with our garden is make it as productive as possible. And so we pull the weeds, we water it, we put all kinds of organic goodies in it for the for the nutrients, and so the fruit will be big and bountiful. And one of the consequences of having a garden bountiful is uh, you can't eat it all without it going bad. And so we got into canning. And for some of you who have no idea what that is, it has actually nothing to do with cans. It has everything to do with jars. Uh, but, but essentially what you do is you put vegetables in it, you fill up the jar with some liquid, and then you put it in a, a pressurized pot 
a pressure cooker that will uh, make it makes make the pressure so much greater inside the pot than outside the pot that um, that when you when you take the jars out essentially and they cool down uh, the pressure remains uh, in the jar versus outside the jar so essentially what happens is the, the pressure is greater now on the outside of the jar and it's keeping the lid on and it's keeping the food preserved um, it's kind of a cool thing if you think about it. Well, I was trying to explain all that, and I even do a very good job just now, but we don't have time to talk about canning, nor do we have the patience, right, to listen to me talking about canning. But I was trying to explain that all to my five-year-old, and she was helping me do this process, and I was walking through all the steps and why we do what we do, and, and I think she listened for the most part, and I think she got most of it for the most part. But one of the interesting things that you know, I was trying to get across is there's this thing called pressure that's caused by gravity and other forces that we don't really see, but we essentially live our life by, right? I kick a ball up into the air, and I live my life knowing that it's going to come back down. I put an egg on my counter, and I know that if I don't stop it soon, it's going to roll, hit the floor, and make a big mess that my dog will eat up in, in no time at all. Right? Eggs roll off counters. Balls come down from the skies. That's what happens with gravity at work. But it's something that you and I can't see, at least the actual presence of it, but we can see and feel the effects of it. And my friends, that's essentially Luke's point for us tonight, is that there are things that we cannot see, but that are so real that we ought, that we must, as Christians, live our lives by them. And to and failure to do so uh, misses out on a great host of blessings. And so, my friends, just like trying to explain uh, pressure to a five-year-old in the canning process, Luke, I believe, does that here for us tonight. And so though I don't see gravity and pressure, I live my life by it. And as, as though we don't see oftentimes uh, the very power and authority from Jesus Christ and of Jesus Christ, we must and we ought to live our lives by that very power. You see, Luke wants us to see tonight that a life of faith in Jesus can never, ever be limited by insurmountable obstacles. That's never the intended uh, uh, white flag that we put up as Christians. Is, the, is the, the, the difficulties too great? The obstacle is too large. No, my friends, as the little song goes, my God is so big, so strong and so mighty. You're going to have to put up with me. That's the kind of world I live in. But it's a great theological world. And so tonight... For us, Luke, I think, really wants us to get to the point in our lives where our faith will live, not according to what we see here on this earth, and import all kinds of popular things going on right now, but where our faith will rule the day according to Jesus Christ and how we live. And so we're going to see three simple things here tonight. Uh, Jesus... Uh, is never absent from anything. And we see that in verse 12. With Jesus, there is no such thing as a desolate place for a Christian. We see in verse 13 and following, with Jesus, there is no such thing as a limit on ability. 
And in verse 17, we're going to see that with Jesus, there's no such thing as leaving unsatisfied. And so let's look at how Luke really puts for us forth the apostles to teach us how to walk by faith and not merely by sight. And so with Jesus, there's no such thing as a desolate place. We see that in verse 12. The apostles are concerned about the 5,000 men that are present, let alone, Matthew says, the women and the children that were there. So how many were there? There were at least 5,000 plus maybe 10,000, maybe 15,000, maybe 20,000. Wouldn't it be out of the question? And so there are this many people gathered, and yet there is a desolate place. Luke notes there's no place for them to lodge. There's no place for them to eat. And so the disciples, the apostles in specific, are concerned about the well-being, the, the ability to pr- 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 provide for these, for these uh, mass number. And so Luke's version of the feeding of the 5,000 is one of the simplest uh, Mark, I believe, is, uh, is, is close to his simplicity in the presentation of it. But he connects this miracle with the transition of verses 1 through 9, the ministry transition. He does that in several ways. He obviously has the same uh, audience in mind. We're primarily talking, the primary focus of this, of this narrative is the 12 apostles. It's not the 5,000. It's not even necessarily Jesus in the miracle he performs. But Luke is really emphasizing the apostles and their disposition. And they're, they're, they're walking by sight rather than by faith. In fact, he parallels uh, even some of the, the same ther- terminology here in verse 12 when he says, uh, the, the apostles say, send the crowds away. There were, it was the same crowd that appeared at the end of the ministry transition of the apostles as they come back to Jesus in verse 9 and verse 10 and start reporting to Jesus all that they had done and accomplished. And their reports uh, bring with it the, the uh, authenticity that the crowds are amassing to see this Jesus whom has given this, these 12 the power and authority to do the things that they have just been doing on their mission. And so there's the crowd connection. There's also the villager and countryside connection in verse 12. You see that? Hey, Jesus, can we send them to the surrounding villages and the countrysides? Boy, that sounds a lot like the villages and the countrysides in verse 6 and the cities in verse 5 that Jesus talks about. And so there's these locales that are really connecting these two narratives together, I, I, I think. And it's helpful to understand that Luke brings these parallels up because Luke wants us to know that the feeding of the 5,000 was a continuation, essentially, of the instruction that Jesus had for the apostles. Jesus uh, does something, remember, altogether different in verses 1 through 9. As we talked about last week, he, he begins the ministry transition from himself to the apostles, which will ultimately be handed down to us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ in the church. And this critical ministry transition isn't over. In fact, they're only halfway through Jesus' ministry, his physical ministry on earth. They're about 18 months in. They have another 18 months to go. And it's going to be a long 18 months of learning for the apostles. Because as we can see here, as soon as they come back from their success, 
<laughs> healing and preaching. They kind of flop here with the feeding of the 5,000. And so it is really to prove to the apostles that a life of faith in Jesus can never be limited by insurmountable obstacles. And we're going to see that. The feeding of the 5,000 was for the 12 because they saw insurmountable obstacles all over the place. There were 5,000 people and a desolate place. What in the world are we going to do? 5,000 plus people. Rationally speaking, this was a perfectly legitimate concern. But what did they just come back from doing? They just came back from having all from having Jesus' power and authority transitioned to them so that they could preach the gospel with the kind of success and clarity that he could preach the gospel with, so that they had the authority to heal and cast out demons according to verse 1, according to verse 2, according to verse 6, that Jesus had. And so they had that kind of power. They had that kind of success. And yet, they kind of see 5,000 people in a desolate place, and they're scratching their heads. And they don't know what to do. And they come running to Jesus. I mean, after all, it's a, it's, it's a, it's, it's a biblical thing to want to provide for people and to want to care for people. Second Timothy chapter 2 tells us uh, that, that, uh, um, that a father must provide for his family. Second Thessalonians chapter 3 says essentially the same thing, that we've got to provide for ourselves. And so the apostles certainly want to do that, and they certainly want to do that for the 5,000-plus men, women, and children that were seating, sitting around them. The disciples saw desolation when they should have seen who they were with and what he had given them. He, they were with Jesus what the verse says, isn't it? Verse 12, now the day was ending and the 12 came and said to him. Jesus was right there. <laughs> he had given them power and authority. He had, he had demonstrated time and time again that there was no obstacle that could get in his way. He had all power and authority and yet um, what, do they, what do they do? What do they do? They say, well, this is a desolate place. This is a desolate place. And so there's a few learning opportunities here. Human faith tends to have bad memory. You know, we all talk about uh, cognitive ability, and, and, and we wish that we had our cognitive ability of yesterday, and we're fearful of our cognitive ability going forward, and... and and especially with the, with the studies of Alzheimer's and dementia and all these kind of things, we, we, we love cognitive ability, and we want to have cognitive ability. Well, my friends, faith, at least in, from the human sense, tends to, to have a bad memory. It tends to forget quite often and quite quickly. The apostles really demonstrate this, don't they? I mean, after all, they had all this power and authority. It's the same day that they reported the very power, reported the very power and authority to Jesus Christ himself. And yet they were overwhelmed. And what was the difference? What was the change? So Jesus sends them out two by two to go minister in verses 1 through 9. Right? They have great power and they preach and they're successful. What's the difference? They even were told not to take anything with them, verses 3, 4, and 5. That sounds pretty desolate. That sounds like Jesus is promising to provide. 
So there are a lot of similarities with the obstacle that they face here. The main difference is that it is overwhelming. There are at least 5,008 plus other people there. 5,008 men and then plus women and children. What do I mean by 5,008? Well, if you go out two by two as an apostle, right, in, in verses one through nine, so there's two of you. So that's 5,000 minus two. But then there's also 10 additional apostles there now. So that's 5,008. But don't forget the 5,009th person that was there. That's Jesus Christ. And they forgot all that. Those 5,000 other bodies were so overwhelming to them that the one that matters, the one that had even demonstrated that he was willing to give them power and authority, now that quickly faded from their memory and quickly became overwhelming to them. Human faith tends to be overwhelmed with these kind of experiences, these uh, wide-eyed moments, this, this deer-in-the-headlights kind of But what we need so desperately to remember and what the apostles just forgot is that with Jesus, there are absolutely, without a doubt, no limiters. Jesus can never be limited. And a life of faith in Jesus can never be limited by insurmountable obstacles. My friends, tonight, do you believe that? No matter what is happening in the world, whether it is pandemic, political, or personal. How about that for three Ps in 2020, right? No matter what in the world is happening, my friends, there is no obstacle bigger than what Jesus can handle. And what Jesus can handle in your life today. Do you believe that? I don't know what limits you see in your life right now. I don't even want to begin <laughs> to think through those things for, your, for you. I've got them for me. <laughs> Perhaps they are sin habit related. Perhaps they are health related. They're work related. They're marriage related. They're relationally related. They can be the biggest boulders you have ever encountered. But don't forget who spoke and all things came to be. Don't forget who sustains everything by the word of his power. Don't forget who is coming back to reign and to rule with his very word. And every knee will bow and tongue will confess. My friend, it is worth repeating one more time, okay? A life of faith in Jesus can never be limited by insurmountable obstacles. And with Jesus, there is no such thing as a desolate place because with Jesus, there is no such thing as a limit on his ability. We see that in verse 13. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. And that, that seems rather surprising, doesn't it? At first, Jesus' response uh, suggests that maybe uh, he's dismissive or he's insensitive or, or, or I don't know. It's just, it's, just, it's just kind of the odd response. You wouldn't think that Jesus would say that. But his response can be explained perfectly if we remember where the 12 just came from. Right? They just came from exhibiting the very power and the very authority that Jesus gave them. They just reported on that power and authority. Right? And so in our context, it is clear. It is clear 
that Jesus is sincere when he says, you give them something to eat. He is sincere and exhortational and encouraging when he says, you, the ones that I just gave power and authority to, you give them something to eat. But their response, look at it, verse 12. We have no more than five loaves, two fish. Their response misses the mark, doesn't it? They don't see enough, so they have an unworkable suggestion. What's their suggestion? Okay, well, we don't have enough. We have five and two. Uh, perhaps we could go and, and buy more food, and, and we wouldn't have enough unless we did that. And, and uh, we learn from Matthew's account, um, or John's account, I think it is, actually, that, uh, that they didn't even probably have enough money to go buy enough food. And even if they did have enough money to go buy enough food for 5,000 plus people, so 5 to 20,000 people probably, how in the world are they going to get it back to this desolate place? And how long is it going to take to actually procure enough food? Remember, this is late in the day. This is as the day's waning, as it's, as it's turning to evening, and, and, and they want to get people back to the villages and back to the countryside. And they don't have enough food. They don't have ability to transport. They don't probably even have a merchant at this hour that could probably provide enough, even if they had enough food. And so the spotlight is on the apostles. Jesus puts it there. You give them something to eat. And Luke doesn't take it off of them as he records this account. Jesus just sent them on a mission, and yet they regress back to living by sight and not by faith. Remember we said that faith tends to have a pretty bad memory, at least when it comes to the, the human component of it. My friends, that's exactly the, the case here that Luke, I think, is, is, is just putting a spotlight on, that the apostles really blew it here. The apostles really fell, and they, they forgot just all that they were able to do with Jesus. You know, Luke's narrative puts the spotlight on the apostles and, and the fact that they're trying to walk more by sight than faith by actually leaving out some details that some of the other gospel accounts uh, bring in. For instance, we have no mention here of the boy, the boy who had five loaves and two fish. It doesn't say anything about him. It just says the, the apostles had five loaves and two fish. Boom, spotlight on the apostles. Uh, it also really doesn't say anything much about the miracle. Let's look at that. It says in verse 16, Then Jesus took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed them and broke them and kept giving them to the disciples to set before the people. That's it. That's all we have about the miracle, the greatest miracle in the face of 5,000 plus people, and Jesus just kept on giving bread. That's it. That's, that's all the detail we have. It's almost like we forgot that the main big thing about Storytelling is some sensational stuff like miracles. <laughs> Luke doesn't barely even record it. It's a good thing he said, kept giving it to them, or we would have missed it. So there's an there's a incredible lack of detail here, and it's on purpose, because the spotlight is on the apostles. We don't have many details. We don't have many details. The crowd, the boy, the detail of the miracles... Not much, not much, because the focus is on the apostles. It's on the apostles because what is glaring is how soon after their mission 
They were given great power and authority, yet they reverted back to faith, excuse me, back to sight, living by sight, and not living by faith. And you may be thinking, okay, well, Pastor Steve, maybe they just didn't have this power and authority anymore. Maybe, maybe that kind of fell by the wayside as, as after they reported to Jesus. Maybe that's how they even knew to come back, is because they stopped getting power, and so Jesus brought them back. Well, that's all conjecture, and we have no idea about that. That could be true, that couldn't be true. And they may not have had power. They may have, they may have tried, certainly, to, to, to manufacture bread, though I, I doubt it's, it's doubtful in my mind. But I don't think that's really pivotal or really critical to, to the flow of this narrative, to the argumentation. I think, I think the reality is, is that the apostles reported the very same day. This is, this is very close in proximity. That's not by accident. Um, in fact, Jesus was really trying to retreat away from the crowds. His intention it wasn't to provide bread for these crowds at all, yet, yet the apostles are the ones who kind of bring this up, and, 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 and really we see that, that they are standing next to the one who has all power and authority. Regardless of whether or not their power or authority dissipated or left or, or, or whatever kind of conjecture that we could, we could think, the fact of the matter is it is the one who gave them this power and authority that is standing right there with them. And they should have known, and they should have known very clearly that Jesus has all ability. The issue with the apostles was that the apostles still had faith of theory. They had a theory of faith. But it didn't, have, it didn't quite walk into reality with them yet. And so I'd like to at least give a brief illustration that might help us with that. You know, the Shema, pastor preached on that a, a, about a month ago, the Shema of Israel. That's, that's Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's the reciting of the Shema. That's an, an important part of the Jewish religion, the Jewish faith. It's like their pledge of allegiance. They say it in the morning. They say it in the evening if you're a traditional Jew. And tradition states that one of the things that should happen is the, during the first few verses of the Shema, they should actually cover their eyes. And one of the, one of the reasons for that is uh, by covering the eyes, one rabbi says, uh, our eyes, we are showing that we are to some extent discounted from the world outside of ourselves without distraction. In other words, closing off the eyes is kind of like our way of closing our eyes when we pray. It's, it's so that I don't focus on anything out here. It's that I focus on myself. And then the rabbi says this, and I thought this was profound, about covering his eyes, covering the eyes when saying the Shema of Israel. He says, it is easy to accept God as king and supreme being. Above, beneath, left, right, everywhere, except upon one's self. By covering our eyes with our hands, he says, we are making a statement that we are focusing on ourselves. A sense of responsibility and obligation to our Lord. In other words, uh, the Lord, when, when, you know, the Shema of Israel starts off, uh, Shema Israel, the Lord our God is one. And when they cover their eyes, they're saying that the Lord is one, not just about here, but he is Lord over here, me. 
theory became reality in May 1945 when Jewish chaplains in the U.S. military were sent to liberate death camps across Europe. While on their mission, they were told that, they were, that there were Jewish children being held in a monastery in South France. They approached the priests in the monastery and they said uh, they were here to collect Jewish children. And some of these children had been in the monastery since 1939. The priests responded by saying, unless you have documentation of which children are Jewish, we will not be able to hand the children over to you. The, rabbi, the rabbis asked to come back later that night just to see the children right before they went to bed, right before they went to bed in the evening. They walked into the dormitory where there were small beds and children lined up at the end of each bed. And one of the rabbis called out, Shema Israel, the Lord our Lord is one. And child after child began to raise their hands and cover their eyes. And every child that covered their eyes, the rabbi said, That one is ours. We are taking him home. Theory became reality to those rabbis, to those children. It served as a document that they were Jewish. Theory becomes reality when we do what we know. Theory is, I know Jesus can do this. Moving to reality is, I will live this way because I know Jesus can do this. Theory becomes reality when what we know about God changes how we live. The apostles here demonstrate that they knew about Jesus. They go to him. They run to him. They even experienced the power and authority, but it was easy for them to stop living according to what they know and retreat to the overwhelming obstacle right in front of their eyes. 5,000 plus men, women, and children. The problem is when there are overwhelming obstacles in front of us, that is when we need faith the most. And with Jesus, there is no such thing as a limit on ability. By sight, says no way. It's not going to happen. Impossible. By faith, says with Jesus, there is no such thing as a limit on ability. And so this is encouragement for us, the feeding of the 5,000, to stop living by sight, to stop living by theory, and start living by faith, to move that theory into our reality of what we actually do. This brings us to our final point tonight. When we move from a life of sight to a life of faith, we see that there's no such thing as an unsatisfied life. That is, when we move from a life of sight to a life of faith, there's absolutely no such thing as an unsatisfied life. That is the final blow for us tonight that Luke wants us to just waft over us through the Holy Spirit. Is that when we are living by faith... You are satisfied, but merely living by sight as a Christian means that we are going to be unsatisfied. We're going to be unsatisfied. With Jesus, there is no such thing as living unsatisfied. Verse 17, and they all ate, talking about the bread and the fish, and were satisfied. And the broken pieces which they had left over were picked up, 12 Baskets full. 
It's a simple point, isn't it? It's profound. Luke doesn't have to go on. There's a desolate place. There's an insurmountable obstacle of thousands of men, women, and children. There were five loaves and two fish. And with Jesus, you walk away completely satisfied and having more than you need. It could be done. That's it. That's all we need. They all ate, and they were satisfied. There were enough scraps. There were enough scraps, Luke says. Luke records the simple application. They were all satisfied because of Jesus. It's not complicated. It's not rock and science. It's when we get on a step with Jesus that things get messy, isn't it? When we think theory, but we don't live it by faith. It's messy. When we go our own way, it's messy. When we watch ourselves or others step away, it always gets messy and unsatisfying and frustrating. It's a simple point, but it's a profound one. My question tonight at the end here is, are you satisfied? Are you satisfied with Jesus and Jesus alone? Are you satisfied? Not for a time. Are you satisfied? Not because it's sunny. Are you satisfied? Not because it's the weekend. Not because things are going well. Not because you got a raise. But are you satisfied? You know, in conclusion, Jesus asked this question to his apostles. In verse 18, he says, Who do the people say that I am? This question was emphasized in Luke's account. It's the same question that has the same answer in verse 9. Verse 19, after Jesus asked that question, who do you say to the people, who, who do the people say that I am? Jesus, uh, the, the apostles say, well, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say the prophets of old. Verse 9, Herod wonders the same thing. Who is this Jesus? And Luke gives the exact same, excuse me, in verse 7, he, he gives the exact same uh, answer. Uh, some say John, some say Elijah, some say the prophets of old. See, there's this, there's this beautiful frame. And the picture inside the frame is the feeding of the 5,000. And this frame asks the question, who am I to you? Am I the one that's just theory? Or am, the, am I the one that actually does truly satisfy? And Jesus gives the biggest object, object lesson in the world when he when he takes five loaves and two fish and he says, I and I alone can satisfy. Don't live outside of me. Live within me. That's John's point in his gospel in this account. Jesus, in closing, asks that question not just to the people. Who do the people say that I am? He asks that of the apostles and they record. Some say Elijah, some say John the Baptist, some say prophets of old. But then in verse 20, he says, but who do you, apostle, who do you, believer, say that I am? And Jesus, uh, Jesus, Peter, in his like, bold, first fashion, says, you are the Christ God. You are the, you are the anointed of God. You are the Messiah of God. Peter had it. And here, it was working to hear. 
But my friends, this little narrative with a lot of people and just a few bread and a few fish really gives us a wake-up call tonight. Who is Jesus to you? Is he someone that wherever he is, there is no desolate place? Is he someone to you that there is no limit on his ability? Is he someone to you that always, unquestionably, unquestionably, at every time and in every place, satisfies? Life of faith in Jesus can never be limited by insurmountable obstacles, no matter how many, no matter how big. Father, tonight, oh Lord, help us to let these truths wash over us from Luke. If we had some sort of virtual hand-raising tonight, it, it would be apparent that each one of us, each one of us tonight would be falling short in how our faith has clung on to you. But Lord, just like this passage demonstrates the great apostles themselves coming off of a successful mission, fail. So do we. But you loved them, you kept growing their faith, and you used them in mighty ways. And so help us to take comfort tonight that sometimes in the midst of our greatest successes, we still find some of our worst failures. And that all the more helps us to cling, to confess, and to call upon you. Oh, Father, tonight we pray that you would do a work in our hearts, increase our faith, and help us be more like your Son. And it's in his precious name we pray.